You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. It, this is a very strange juxtaposition for me because I am sitting in the KXE studios in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, across the desk from none other than Scott Hall, who for 15 years, just so you know, our listeners know, for 15 years was the opposite. He was interviewing me, and now we, we've turned the table. So welcome to the world-famous Strong Towns Podcast, Scott. Yeah, now you're going to find out how much I don't know, and I was just picking your brain to, to learn something myself. Uh, well, it's kind of funny because you, you've you done radio for so long, and I've learned a ton from you in how to do some of this stuff. So now I'm going to show you that I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of self-conscious doing this interview. Oh, no, that's all right. <laughs> just remember who, what, why, when, and how. All right. Um, we're going to talk about the Iron Range and the Grand Rapids area. And I wanted to interview you not only because we're friends, but because you've had this unique experience with the Iron Range in your position here at KEXE and, and, and being a member of this community. But I, I want to go back. You, you're originally from St. Louis. Correct. You're not, as they would say, you're not a native. Correct. Um, I'm a pack sacker. <laughs> what that's does a, that mean? That's a, the Iron Range version of a carpetbagger. Oh, okay. You're, uh, you're a new guy. All right. And now my daughter, who's 33 years old, isn't a pack sacker. She was born here. Oh, is she considered? I thought you had to get like three, three or four generations oh, no. in. You're, she's, if you're native, you're native. She's good. Yeah. Oh, okay. Her opinion counts much more than mine. Because <laughs> she grew up here. Uh, sure. I've only lived here 40 years. Right. You're <laughs> relatively new. Um, you were from St. Louis. Mm-hmm. When did you move here? Early 70s? 75, 41 years ago this week. Okay, okay. Um, I, and I, 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 my grandparents had a, a place up here from 1923 to, yeah, for my, it was a place in my family for 60 years. So when we were kids, we came up here a lot in like the a, summer. Like a, like, a vaca- like a cabin? It was an old cabin, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What, how did your grandpa come across an old cabin? My there? grandpa was um, a traveling salesman for his own company in Nebraska. <laughs> then he, uh, he had a customer. I'm going to give you the short version. He had a customer in Minneapolis, and he had well-established uh, customers in the upper Midwest, Chicago, Minneapolis, Duluth. He loved to come up to northern Minnesota and sell. Yeah. And, um, and one in 1923, one of his customers in Minneapolis said, Bill, I want to buy those fixtures. Will you take a cabin on a lake in northern Minnesota for them? So it was a trade. <laughs> yeah. That is the short story. So bar- it was a barter. Yeah. And it yeah. was an old, small, you know, one, really a 20 by 20 cabin. When would that have been? During the Depression? 1923, no. The, before pre-Depression, the yeah, roaring 20s. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he hung on to it all those years. Well, yeah. He died in 52, so he had it for about 30 years. And my, he thought after the war... His business was doing well, so he built a bigger cabin. And he thought all his five kids and the grandkids would all use this. Well, it turned out my mom was the only one of the five kids who grew up in Nebraska who really wanted to spend time here. The other kids went their own ways. And so our family ended up using it the most every summer. So was this kind of a... I'm trying to 
picture this young man hanging out on the docks in St. Louis, uh, you know, kind of a, a gritty industrial town. Very gritty. Uh, pining for the North Woods. Is that, is that a fair way to no, put it? No. Okay. Then talk about what brought you here and, and, and what, was the, what was the draw? Well, my brother and I spent um, July and August for 15 summers up on this lake, and we had to make our own fun. Yeah. And of course, the lake was the greatest toy in the world. We spent hours and hours fishing and swimming and, and walking the woods and, and things like that. So we had all this, um, and we'd go to town to either Walker or Hackensack maybe once a week. And, and there was this one little power line drooping down to the cabin. My grandma said, yeah, they brought that in after the war. <laughs> she was ready. I mean, she had uh, a wood cook stove. She had kerosene lamps. She and we pumped, even when I was a kid, we didn't have running uh, potable water in the house. We pumped it up from the lake. And then we'd go out. And one of my chores was to go out and bring in the water. It was great. And she had an ice box. So, and there was an old ice house up in the woods where they actually did harvest ice in uh, a Tussler's farm. So I got, uh, you know, I un- unintentionally exposed to this. 19th century. My grandma was totally, I mean, she was a modern woman, but she'd come up to Minnesota and just go berry picking and, and make bread. And, and we kind of learned at her foot and uh, learned a different way of life. And the, of course, every summer we'd get these big storms rolling through and knock the power out. So we turned the kerosene lamps on, fire up the wood cook stove and just <laughs> nothing changed. No problem. Right. No problem. We did pump, had to pump more water, but that's about it. Yeah. You know, and we'd go four, three or four days without electricity. And, uh, my, of course, my mother had grown up there, too, and she, she was comfortable with that. It was an adventure. Right, right. 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 So I think I, I couldn't tell you, only in hindsight, I can only tell you that those experiences really made a... And being with my brother and making our own life, our own fun for all those years, I think that's what made me move here. Because I lived... I grew up in St. Louis which was a heavy industrial town. My dad worked down in the... He had a warehouse down in the rail yards. I worked in his warehouse, 90 degrees. <laughs> Summer St. Louis was just hotter than hell. And um, and the, the freight train would back up to the warehouse. We'd unload the stuff and then load it out the front door when my dad got orders. And it was one full-time employee and him. And so I really got to know St. Louis. It had a Chevy plant. Chrysler had a plant down there. First in shoes, first in booze, last in the American League. We had like seven breweries. Anheuser-Busch is now the best known. Um, we had International and Brown Shoe in St. Louis. Both of those factories, my dad worked at Brown Shoe in the 30s during the Depression. Um, they took up whole, whole city blocks uh, right, on Washington right. Avenue. They were huge huge. And then you had all these foundries, which uh, a foundry makes castables, uh, car parts. St. Louis was a big uh, foundry town. And so my dad sold his products to the foundries were a big part of his business. Granite City Steel over in Illinois. I drove truck and delivered for him over there. And uh, that was a big steel steel mill. And in fact, U.S. Steel owns it still. They closed it down last year for that. Oh, really? Yeah, kind of sad. So first in shoes, first in booze, mm-hmm. and last in the American, American League. League. Yeah. 
and so my dad had to move there from Kentucky during the Depression in 1931. He was 18 years old, never graduated from high school. He and his brother moved there to send money back home sure. because of the Depression. And then they, were, they had 90 different jobs during the Depression. Some they got fired, some they got laid off. They just kept bouncing around, lived in a YMCA for a while until they could afford an apartment. And then they brought Grandma and Grandpa to St. Louis in the 40s when the war economy picked up during the war. But um, so for a nickel, you could go to a doubleheader on a Sunday afternoon in Sportsman's Park, and then everybody worked six days a week, you know, 60-hour weeks or 50-hour weeks or whatever. What was the what was the linchpin moment? Oh, what was the, what was the thing? Was it a push or a pull that had you moving from St. Louis to here? Okay, um, that's a really hard question because after I got out, of were you con- married at this point? No, no. Oh, when we moved here, yeah, yes. you oh, were. Yeah, yeah okay. I got married um, first. After I was married, we met, lived in Boston two years. I had I had spent one summer in New England. I love Maine and I love New England. And so I had a chance to get a job out there, and, and we did. We worked out there for a couple of years. It was a blast. And, uh, but we were so far from family, and my brother was out in San Francisco, so we, we up and left New England after a couple of years and went to San Francisco to visit my brother, and we stayed there two, three years. Okay. And I worked there for myself, and, and we had jobs there. And then my dad calls me and said, Hey, the old Knoll place is for sale on Pick Lake just down the road from Grandma and Grandpa's. And my dad and mom were retired by then. And it was 30 acres on a, on a lake. And he said, you want to buy it? And I said, sure. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Why not? Yeah, and we'd saved a little money. We always saved money wherever we went. We both worked and put a little away and had enough for a down payment and bought it. And so we got here without jobs in 1975, May of 75. And then we decided we needed jobs. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, a lot of people may not be able to relate to this. So my wife went to Bemidji State and got her teaching certificate, applied for jobs, and I worked at a, at a cabinet factory in, in Hackensack, and it was called the Woodshed, and we were three employees there. We made cabinets and other things out of wood. And um, I was kind of a grunt laborer there. I wasn't the artiste, the woodworker. And... Um, Anyway, uh, then all of a sudden, out of the blue, my wife gets this teaching job in 1977, just two years after we'd been here up in Grand Rapids. So we rented here for a couple of years and kept our place, and then we finally moved here. Okay, you sold the we had to sell the, the place cabin. on the lake. Yeah, and that was a that was a good move because we family still had the other place. Yeah, and, and we enjoyed that with them. It was a little too much overhead for us. Now, when my wife and I were engaged just getting married i actually came up here and scouted out you know potential job opportunities up here as well in grand rapids in grand rapids or? yeah that would have been mid 1990 like 94 mm-hmm. this place is dramatically different since 1994 it has to be a, a whole different world since you moved here in 75 what what was this place like i mean was this the the middle of nowhere was this the end of the oh, world no, or no no or, no Grand Rapids was not the middle of nowhere. Okay. Uh, mainly because of the paper company. Yeah. And uh, and I think the Blanded Foundation. And the the last, I mean, I, we moved here about 10 years after all the mining stopped in Itasca County, except for up around Nashwatt and Kewatin. You know, um, U.S. Steel had a place there, of course. The East, 
eastern part of the county was still mining and still hopes to. Um, so uh, we moved into Cohasset, which was uh, in, the, in the old part of Cohasset. We found a house we could afford, and it was about three-quarters of a mile down the road from Minnesota Power. And Minnesota Power, uh, we had dirt roads in Cohasset in our neighborhood, and it was one of the older parts of town. And within five years, we had sewer and water. We had wells and, and septics when we moved into Cohasset. Right. And then, but within five years, we had sewer and water, and we had blacktopped the roads in our neighborhood. And uh, gradually in the 80s, they put sewer and water throughout kind of the residential part of Cohasset, not the outlying parts. The mining companies owned a ton of land in Cohasset and around Grand Rapids, and they let it go tax forfeit. So developers came in and developed a lot of that land, created um, a lot of... Um, you would know, be able to analyze the numbers better than I, but all these nice lake homes sprung up, really ritzy homes. And the big thing we noticed right away, especially in the 80s, was the boom of the McMansions on the lake. Sure, right? sure. And, um, that, and the development of this tax forfeit land along the lake shores. So this was taking either small cabins or else land that had been raw, undeveloped in a sense. A lot of it had been undeveloped because the mining companies owned it. right. And who were who buying these places at I, that point? I think um, some developers along with bankers, yeah. local bankers. And, um, I'm but not who would sure. buy the house once it was built? That's a good question. Yeah. I think... Because um, it wasn't locals. Oh, there were... Not all... Not, I don't think so. Right. Um, I'm trying to... There were a few locals I knew who, bought, who built the McMansions sure. on the lake. Sure. Um, a lot of people were bulldozing old cabins and building big homes. Right. And... Uh, this was stunning that people would would build such huge houses. And, and I thought of my grandpa at this time because my grandpa had five kids mm -hmm. and he had um, a small cabin that the rooms were divided by by uh, what, drapes, you know, they were right. just strung across. Right. Yep. And he's, he's five kids. He's got 11 grandkids. And I know in the, in the late 40s, he's thinking... Gal, I want these five kids and grandkids to enjoy this place, right? So he goes down the hill and he builds a place with one, two, and it sounds modest now, but I think had two bedrooms downstairs and they were small, tiny bedrooms, and two attic bedrooms that were just attics, you know, where he put some beds up there. And uh, he thought this would be, and a, and a beautiful living room, big spacious living room and a big kitchen. So he thought this is where the grandkids are going to go. And of course, as I said earlier, only one of the kids and grandkids, one of his children and his, his uh, two, two of his grandchildren, now the 11, actually took advantage of all this. And by the time my folks and mom had it, it was this behemoth for my dad to take care of. And he, he loved to fish, but he didn't like to work. Right. So, right. you know, it was too much. And I, I don't know if that's what motivated these these uh, boomers, I think they were mostly boomers, and they had been in their 40s and very productive years, I suppose, to build all these mansions thinking of their grandchildren. I don't know. Right. I, right. Remember, I remember fishing on Pacagama Lake in the early 80s, and uh, by the end of the 80s, you're cruising by all these huge houses. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, geez, are someday are these going to all be old 
bed and breakfasts or something, you know? Are these going to be commercial places? Right. And a few of them have become that, you know? I, I, I do remember just in the Brainerd Lakes area oh, when... Brainerd was even this in Yeah, space. it was crazier, right? Because I remember once my dad looked at a place, and it was just raw shoreline on a kind of a junky part of the lake. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not, no nice sand, just kind of a wet, mucky spot, but it was a lake he really liked. And I remember it was 20,000. And he, he said, it, I remember what he said to me. He goes, it might as well be 2 million because I, I, I don't have that much money. And that's an insane amount of money for that bit of slew. And I mean, I'm sure today that bit of slew would sell for three or 400,000. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's an, and it's, it's been amazing. developed and all that. So yeah, just crazy. Yeah. Now, um, as far as Grand Rapids goes. Yeah. What was the city like? Okay. Um, we rented the first two years we were here, mm-hmm. three years, almost. Yeah. First three years we were here, we would rent and, and then have our, our place in the summer. Um, and rents were expensive for us, but you didn't, you know, the kind of money a teacher was making then was nine to $12,000 a year, which was good. I mean, we could live on that, Sure. but rents took a lot of it. And, um, we lived on Ninth Ninth Avenue Northwest, which is now um, the the footprint of Plan and Paper Number Six, which was built in the eighties, and took all of that uh, River Shore for about I want to say twelve blocks, twelve blocks to the west up up the river. The fact the fact the paper mill yeah it gobbled up all that residential oh, yeah yeah and over half of it two thirds of it is a wood yard and the other third is is this huge incredible paper machine that is an engineering miracle to people like me you know and and of course the paper mill was actually the the heart we're on the west range and everybody when you go five or six miles east of here to Corian and Bovee you know they'll. They will have a different identity than people in Grand Rapids, and that's because we have this paper mill and the foundation, and they had mining. It, those are mining communities. You never were. I, I, I'm not going to say the word tempted, but you never, you never worked for the mill. That no. was never something you. That was never an option for, that you looked oh, sure. into. Or... I, I thought if if you know the mills were contracting then. Um, in fact, Blannon in '77, I believe was bought by a Canadian company. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of job growth in the mill. In fact, it was mechanization. Number six, they built number six mill, paper mill, and it outproduced the other three or four. Oh, really? One, okay. one. It was, uh, I mean, it's, it's an, like I said, it's an engineering wonder where, you, where they have this chain. They call it a chain. I, I do remember in the 80s, and, you know, I was very young, but my dad worked at the paper mill in, in Brainerd, Brainerd for a while. In yeah. Potlatch? Potlatch, yep. And and I remember just the continual squeeze. Right. Like it was always, they were never hiring. It was always like lay, slowly laying off people. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the period of time, like in our national culture, when, I mean, I remember like the country western songs my dad would listen to about people being laid off and replaced oh, yeah. by a machine. And, and is that, a, I mean, was that? Oh, I, I'll tell you, the, the, the big economic story of the 80s here is um, the recession of the early 80s when the mines really went through what they're going through right now. And what happened, and I'm, again, my figures, you might know my figures better than I, I would guess there were ten to 11,000, maybe even 12,000 people directly employed 
when I moved up here in 77, 75, directly employed in producing taconite. And after the shakedown in the 80s, I want to say, and they're making 40, potential to make 40 million tons of taconite to, for a steel industry, domestic steel industry. And I want to say within 12 years, you had about half that many employees making the same amount of, of taconite. Okay. Maybe even less than half. And now it's down to 4,000. 4, and those 4,000 or 4,500 workers working full-time are making as much taconite as they were making in the 70s with three times as many workers. So that, I think that happened to, to the paper mill too, maybe less. But I remember when we were going through that, I was saying, gee, I better not, I better not hope for work here. And um, in fact, I went to Bemidji State part-time and worked part-time for a couple, about a year and a half. Um, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then this little radio station started. And I was interested. I majored in history and economics. I was interested. I loved Iron Range history. In fact, when we were kids, my dad would, we would take a trip every summer to the Boundary Waters. And we'd stop. My dad's, my dad's main, my dad's business was to supply the steel industry with refractories, which are high temperature materials. So we would stop at the Hullrus mine in, in Hibbing. And my dad would say, you've got to see this big hole in the ground. You won't believe it. This is, this is, <laughs> it, it is hard to believe. Yeah. What, he says, what you're looking at, this big hole in the ground, it's Grand City Steel is taking stuff from here and making steel down East St. Louis. Yeah. And you've delivered, you know, I deliver my product to make what comes out of the ground here. I never forgot that. And we'd stop in Virginia. And even in Ely, around Ely, there were still remnants of the old Vermilion Range. And there was just a, a, a geological and cultural, as soon as you got east of Grand Rapids, the landscape and the life changed. And my friend Aaron Brown has described the Iron Range as really a, about a 100-mile-long um, blue-collar city. Right. And it's, it's an interesting way to look at it, I think. What, what was, in, in those early days, what was the, the culture like here? In terms of, and I'm really kind of getting at, I mean, you're in radio. You've done radio now for a couple decades, three decades? Yeah, yeah, 35 years. Right. And, you know, it's, while it's not necessarily an entertainment medium, it's a, it's a communications medium. It's entertainment, too. But it's entertainment. What, what, what was the kind of cultural entertainment scene okay. back when you first came here. I mean, we, we, we talked a little bit off air about the theater that was downtown mm -hmm. and some sure. of the things, but what, what, you know, you've got a, a, a blue collar working class population. Correct. You've got the, the tourism and, and you know, this boom Ma that's starting resorts. mom and pop resorts, but also this boom in kind of construction starting Correct. up. What, what was, what was the vibe of the, the place? I thought it was a pretty blue-collar place because you also had loggers. Logging, logging was pretty, doing pretty well in the 80s. And it, logging's a little like mining, you know, up and down. But uh, I worked in a hardware store for a year and a half. I learned a lot about all the different small businesses going on here. And logging was definitely one. Um, beef farming was one. These are small businesses now. Right. Um, there, and, of course, the mom-and-pop resorts. There's a lot of do-it-yourselfers, people who are really good with their hands. Um, and, and it's a much more blue-collar feel now, then than now. Mm -hmm. um, how else would I... 
culturally? Um, I mean, what, what what would I have done on a Friday, Saturday night? Would I have gone to church, gone to the Muni? Would I yeah. have, uh, you Both. know? You mentioned two things. Yeah. Um, um, we used to have, actually, personally, you might go to a town baseball game because there were town town leagues then. That's what I might do. I don't think a lot of, I never saw a lot of people in the stands there. Uh, I might do that on a weekend or Sunday afternoon. I actually played on a town team one summer. But um, uh, movies, we had two movie houses, and um, one of them is now an art gallery, and the other one has been empty for 30 years, best I can tell. And um, what would we do? We, we, we would go to the Dutch room, the bars, the restaurants, yeah, there were there were definitely dances for sure. Sure. Um, as, as I remember, the Playmore Roller Rink was kind of fun place to go to. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and KXE actually hosted some musical events in the summer in the warm uh, outdoors that were kind of fun, but not a lot. You know, there wasn't a lot of money to pay artists to perform. In the my recollection of the eighties, and, and I want to I want to ask you about this too. The the the. The difference between the summer and the winter in Brainerd was astounding mm-hmm. because in the summer, I mean, right now today, just as an example, we're 50,000 people in Crow Wing County. In the summer, I've seen numbers north of 200,000. I mean, it's a, really? it's a huge shift in population just in terms of the number of people that are there coming up and staying in their cabins and, and at the resorts and what have you. Um, in the winter, when I was a kid... It, the you had high school basketball, you had you know high school hockey, um, you had occasional movie that would you know you'd go see, but it was a it was a pretty cold, mm-hmm. dark, lonely place. This is two hours north of there. I mean, you're deeper in the woods here. We're we're in many ways kind of more isolated from the outside world up here. I, I'm wondering what the, the in the winter. Well, yeah. Well, how how was this place different in the winter than the summer back then? I mean, was, how big it, was the difference? It was quieter. You would have noticed a lot fewer people. Um, you mentioned hockey. I mean, you couldn't uh, hockey here in the '80s. You had to have a legacy seats to get into the hockey game. I'm not kidding. <laughs> but for like a high school game, high school hockey. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, they had three state champions. You know, yeah. in, in within five years, and oh yeah, you know, and it yeah. was yeah, <laughs> hockey. In fact, we probably. Went to 20 hockey games a winter. Wow. High school hockey sure, games. Sure, sure. And, uh, but I'm kind of getting personal. I like sports. So I went to high school basketball games. I refereed basketball, refereeing basketball. And so I really like sports. Um, I can't remember when cable came in, but we didn't, wa- I couldn't watch the North Stars, for example. But I did uh, go to. You a, couldn't because you couldn't stomach it or you couldn't get them. A, oh, you North Stars it. went to the Stanley Cup in the early 80s. Right. Yeah, we wanted to watch them. But, but fact, it just I didn't come did, in on the TV. No, yeah. you didn't have cable or anything <laughs> like that. But, it, um, I, of course, I was younger, so I got outside a lot, skied, um, oh. hiked trails. A lot of my friends snowshoed. And, and, and there was a lot of outdoor time. I, being outdoors was. Fun raising. We were raising our daughter then, and so I spent a lot of times outdoors with her. A lot of time at her school, you know, having fun. I coached her basketball team. Sure, sure. You know what that's like. Oh yeah, doing softball. Yeah. One of the one of the interesting legacies of the mining companies, and I think to a lesser extent the the mill, um, 
were that some of these remote places had amazing facilities, like like the hockey arenas were mm-hmm. fantastic in these places. Is, was that the case up here? Oh gosh, the Hibbing Memorial Building um, and Virginia Miners Memorial Building, Eveleth Hippodrome. You were walking back into history, and but they're like the Hibbing Memorial Building was built in 1937, and it's still to me. Uh, just a great place to see a hockey game. They host the basketball tournaments there too. Um, to go in, everybody who goes to Eveleth has to go to the Hippodrome just to see Frankie Brimsick and all the old hockey players, John Masich, and on and on and on. It's just, um, yeah, the mines, uh, of course, Hibbing High School alone, and really Virginia High School, um, Eveleth High School, built with my Greenway, the Greenway High School Auditorium is just gorgeous. Right. You know, they're. Um, I, I heard something the other day about people, um, what was I reading? People built buildings then that reflected more than just a place to learn. It was a reflection of aspirations and dreams of of immigrants, <laughs> you know, of yeah. something grandiose. And now we're more functional. Our buildings are more functional, it seems like. You, you talked a little bit about, and you quoted Aaron as saying, you know, it's one big blue-collar city, the range, mm-hmm. which, which Grand Rapids would be the, the, the far western side of that. But you said earlier before that that it used to be a lot more blue-collar than it is now. Yeah. That change happened in the 90s, early 2000s. What, sure. Digital, what, digital age. What was that change? What, what brought it about, and, and kind of how has that impacted this place? Well, I think you have to go back to the recession in the 80s. Okay. It was like now, people were really nervous. They were wondering what the future was going to be like. And like I said, I didn't, I had a lot of friends that worked in the paper mill. In fact, I played basketball two nights a week with guys from the paper mill and from Minnesota Power. Those were good paying jobs. Um, you have, in Grand Rapids, like Brainerd is a county seat. So you have a courthouse, you have a DNR regional office, you have a big school, biggest school around. And so you have this core of of public um, institutions that does support the economy. And uh, but to to say, gee, I've got a future in the mines or I've got a future at the paper paper mill, by the way, I remember a lot of um, people I knew that what I would call legacy workers, kind of like your legacy hockey tickets, you're a lot of the um, little older than me, people older than me, but um, be not 60, got their job because their dad worked there. Or, you know what I mean? Right. And, oh, yeah. Well, that, that, was that, was my, my, that was why my dad worked at the mill. Yeah. My dad and two of his brothers worked at the mill. My grandpa was a, retired as a foreman at the, from the mill. Sure. So that was his, you know, after World War II, he got back from Japan and essentially came back, married my grandmother, and went to work at the mill mm-hmm. and worked there 40, 50 years. You know, it's funny. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, my personality is such that I didn't begrudge that, that I couldn't get a job, and even though theoretically I might have been more qualified in some way. It didn't, because they were, they were labor jobs. They were, they were hard, hard jobs to do. They were shift work. Some people were working 16-hour shifts, and it wasn't easy. And um, I didn't feel like, oh, I could never get a job there. I just didn't see a future there. And but it's interesting story for you um, is when my wife got the job teaching at the Grand Rapids schools, the f- uh, there was a, a well-known coach teacher there with the last name Hall, 
and they assumed she was related. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or are you related to Noble? And yeah. Noble, is a, there's a, a track named after him here in town. Okay. He was a legendary football and athletic coach and teacher. And she'd say no. And then the next question was, well, how'd you get a job here? You right, know? right. And she says, I don't know. Bob Elkington hired me. There, there, was, an assu- there was a built-in assumption that your name was like the lunch ticket. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally hear you. I, actually, I, you know... Uh, my first job at the, the DOT, you know, in the early nineties, uh, essentially my uncle was a dispatcher for the, uh, the highway patrol, which was in the same building as a DOT. And he's kind of a talker. So he'd go over and chat with everybody. And then, you know, he, Oh, Chuck, you're going into engineering. Well, they, they have internships over here. Let me introduce you. And everywhere I went in the, in, you know, in the traffic engineering department, it's like, Oh, Marone, you must be <laughs> right. Yeah. There is a, you know, it's actually one of the, I remember in college learning about affirmative action from a, from a, um, you know, an academic kind of setting <laughs> and, you know, before that kind of thinking that I had a problem with affirmative action and then having it explained to me and like, well, yeah, that's how I got my <laughs> job. Exactly. That's exactly how I've got every job I've ever gotten. Right. Uh, was because I knew somebody who knew somebody. That's how I got a job with my dad in the warehouse. Right. Right. <laughs> Driving a truck. So. Right. So yeah, all of a sudden, like the world opened up and like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and these were not like jobs you would kill for. But we didn't call for, it affirmative but... action, did we? No, 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 no. no. Well, and, and, you know, life at the mill, uh, you know, these guys who were essentially bequeathing jobs to their, their kids, uh, these were not, I mean, in, 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 in the white collar world of today, these would not be looked at as desirable jobs, but back then they were, oh, they were, the job and they I, have. I may have implied that they weren't skilled jobs. They were, they were, a lot of them were highly skilled jobs. Um, they just, their skills eventually with, with an, um, mechanization became less valuable. Right. You know, that's right. what, and here you had uh, these guys. In fact, a lot of the people who worked in the mines uh, would come home and really do what they loved. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. they had other skills and, and, uh, yeah, very skilled people. And I was amazed, frankly, at some of the, my neighbor was just so, he worked at the paper mill for, till he died. And he was so, uh, skilled at, just doing building stuff around the house, remodeling his house, doing mechanical things, working on car- I mean, he just had all these multiple skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the population here in Grand Rapids and Stroud area has, has grown a lot. Yeah, I think so. Y- you've gone through, yeah, over the last 15, 20 years, you've, there's it? been quite a growth spurt. Okay. I, I'm, as a relatively newcomer, <laughs> by local standards, <laughs> right. How, how do you, I mean, how do you look at the, the, the changes that have happened over the last 20 years? Because it's, it's it, like I said, I, you know, I was up here in the early 1990s looking at jobs and, mm-hmm. and potentially, I, I remember my wife saying, and I've alluded to this a couple of times and you push back a little bit. You know, I've said, this is the, this is the end of the earth, you know, by my wife's standards. Like I would never live that far <laughs> from, you know, what have you, but, but you've kind of insisted that it's. It's not. Oh, gosh, no. In fact, I'm sure my experience with my brother growing up on the lake, I always felt that this place was just rich with stories, people, history. Um, I mean, if you go look at old plat maps, you know, and see how the paper, uh, the wood 
wood companies came through here in the 1880s and 90s and took everything. And then the tourist industry and, and the for, uh, forestry industry gradually rebuilt a, a local economy, and then mining and paper came in. And it's, it's in, I've never thought of this as a wilderness. I mean, my idea of, well, the Boundary Waters is barely my idea of a wilderness. Sure. You know, this, is, this place is teeming with uh, people doing incredible things. Um, and I learned that right away, and the radio station helped introduce me to that because once I, I, I moved here, um, KAXE had been here two years, and, and I met some people who worked at the station who taught me how to produce radio, and I realized this is my ticket to meet people. And I went up, I went to the ends of the range from Ely down to here interviewing old, old timers and some people whose second language was English. And I guess got about three years of oral histories and my fill of what life was like for those first and second generation immigrants, including, um, including not just the miners, but the loggers and the, log- and the woodworkers, uh, the people who worked in Ryla Lumber Mill up in Big Fork, you know, Dan Berman up there. I, I was in the 50-plus club with him in 1981 and with Alice uh, Lapeer, who was just a gadfly of a school teacher up there. And um, she introduced me to Dan. I said, Dan, what what'd you do? He, oh, I worked in Ryla Mill for 30 years, you know. I said, well, where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up, uh, El- what's around the east, east side of Mille Lacs? What's Isle? Uh, yeah, Isle, oh, Malmo, Malmo, Glen. Yeah, yeah, around there. I said, well, what brought you to Big Fork? He says, oh, I was a good pitcher, and they needed a, ta- a pitcher for the town team, <laughs> so they hired me at the, pi- at the wood mill at Ryla. Perfect. Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and he pitched for the local town team and worked in the sawmill. And uh, just stories like that are priceless. Also, mining um, was a six-month-a-year thing when it wasn't winter. So in the winter, they farmed. They had homesteads. They didn't farm in the winter, but they had homesteads. and they, they Cattle. Yeah, Chickens, they, they also right. farmed during yeah. the, during the, and so they they put up food. It was an amazing life uh, of coping with um, the whole the whole seasonal thing up here. But a lot of the, especially the northern Europeans, the Finns especially, were so quickly adapted to it that I was just blown away by the Finns. Sure, <laughs> and and through KAXE we had a program called Finnish Americana for seventeen years. And um, we were a, a non-profit public radio station. And the, the Finnish listeners understood it just like that because they had co-ops. Culturally. They Culturally, got they got it immediately. Yeah. And Leo Keskinen would come in on a Sunday afternoon for an hour. And, and you think Sunday afternoon is like the deadest time to listen to the radio. And our, our, if they didn't do Arbitron or, or those kind of audience things. We just spiked. Yeah. And, and Leo would come in during fundraisers, and we'd, in two hours, he'd get 120 pledges from 10 to $20. And we'd raise more money in two hours than we would in three, three days. <laughs> right. And the Finns would come in, take over the station. They'd bring food. They'd set up. There'd be 30 of them sitting around chatting. It would be a social event. Wow. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was just incredible. You know, they just, they got it. But, um, so I, I just thought that... I had to know more about these fins, you know. So you go to Embarrass and you go around the East Range and learn about the homesteaders and the, and the, the way they built homes and the, the way of life there. It was fascinating. Where are we at today? I mean, we, we, you, you, look at, you look at this place 
And one thing I haven't mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. We're going through now what we went through in the eighties uh, with the mind, with the man, with the mind. Yep. The future's um, not as optimistic now, even as it was then, and it wasn't very optimistic then. We had a couple things going for us, and one is the sure the world market in steel was was there, and it was big, but you didn't have Australia and Brazil coming online with huge ore projects, and we, our governor was from Hibbing, and this was sure. at, and Rudy Perpich being from here, and I don't know if you ever met or talked to Rudy, Rudy was tireless. He was, you could not get the guy down. Maybe in his, maybe he had dark moments, but when we were around Rudy, it was like, we're going to do this. We can get, we can do this. We're, we're Iron Rangers. We're creative. We're innovative. We're resilient. And he never, never, he always had a vision. You know, and if you had a, a an idea for for a goofy two person operation, Rudy was said you can do it. Right, he'd be your number one cheerleader, and he just brought that spirit to the range and was like, okay, we're going to be okay, you know. But then you'd he'd go away and you'd be, you'd say, oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> but still, uh, I think it really meant a lot. To There's me. a sense that someone had your back. Exactly. Yeah. Plus, you got to remember, we had Doug Johnson in the Senate, who we had a powerful politicians in the legislature from from this from, part of the state. Yeah. yeah, Doug Johnson from Cook. I remember Doug was very powerful in the Senate. Lauren Solberg, right here in Grand Rapids, chaired the Ways and Means in the mm-hmm. House. Um, I'm, I'm missing. Oh, Bob Lassard was Environment and Natural Resources from International Falls. Well, and I don't know what impact Jim Oberstar was having at that point, but certainly by the time I became aware of, of politics, he was he one was of the huge. biggest players. Oh, he yeah. was huge. Yeah. yeah. Oberstar chaired the House Transportation in the U.S. Congress. Right. If, if he wanted something, you had to go through Jim right. to get what you wanted. So right. he got what he wanted, right? Right. And it happened to be roads and things like that that we're now trying to pay for. Right. <laughs> you know? But uh, it's, yeah, it was, uh, there was a lot more power still on the range. And, of course, DFL, um, everybody, I mean, Walter Mondale, everybody went to see Vita Ponikvar in Chisholm. You, if you wanted to run for statewide office, you had to go meet Vita, who was the editor of the Chisholm paper. And and be photographed with her, and you had to make it on the range if you were going to make it in state politics. And that's certainly not the case now. No. Although I, I will say, in in the DFL, the Democrat Farm Labor Party here in Minnesota, there still is the range still does have a lot. Uh, 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 how do I put this? I won't say an oversized influence, but but compared to your population, the the organization appears still such that it has an outsized influence uh, compared to, say, the western part of the state where maybe you have roughly the same amount of people, but not the organization. Uh huh. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I think I do. Yeah. Although from my perspective, the power and the range has been is much more marginalized. The, even the DFL is split. The DFL power now is in the metro. Is in the metro, right. Don't you think? Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and the Republicans is in the suburbs. And, right. There's no question. And so I think in the 80s and 70s, uh, you know, I think you could compare the power of the Democrats in the metro. I mean, you could say the Iron Range had as much power almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the chairmanships and the senior Irv Anderson in the House, from International Falls, very powerful. Right. So we had a lot of power, political power up here. And we got, you know, even in hard times, we probably got what we wanted or what we needed 
in a session more than we do now. Mm-hmm. You know. where, where are we at now then? And, and, and you said that this, is very, this feels very much like the early 80s, but with a, a little bit more desperation yeah. in a sense. You know, You've got mines closing. Mm-hmm. You've got some of the, what, what in the business we would call the exporting industries, the, the industries that bring in capital mm-hmm. and export services and materials are on the decline. Right. And you know, I think I think iron mining is always going to be here as long as we have the ore. I th- it may we may see more contraction. Um, I think our biggest potential in terms of bigger things happening is in wood products. And I don't think we've begun. We're beginning to realize the the breadth of the potential in wood products, but it's not going to be huge paper mills. It's going to be in in value-added wood products. And um, I can't... So actual, like, craftsman Maybe, or stuff. even just specialized sawmills. Yeah. I mean, we had some special... In the 80s, I remember some specialized sawmills were going... I know the Ryla companies tried veneer, you know, and, and just had a heck of a time getting... And I don't think they got it going. But, man, they took that risk, which was a huge risk. And uh, the Ryla companies are hanging on, and they're still devoted to this region and, and, and believe in forestry and wood products. Um, I, we have, the other reason I have, have a little hope for the wood products is we have by far public and private probably the best forestry professionals in the world up here. And you, you, you've used the example of a farm field yeah. where something grows well in one place and not in another. Right. Well, our foresters really know how, understand the land now. And they understand what the land can do and understand its its most uh, productive and creative ways to use it. Whereas when I moved up here, it was just grow and cut and grow and cut, you know, tree farms after tree farms. Right. Now right. it's so it's so much more interesting. I had one professional a forester I met in the 80s who was getting the cut out, you know, for the sawmills or the paper mill. He was just buying timber and cutting it, you know. And in the early 90s, he... He was, uh, I guess he went back to school in a way. And I said to him, Jim, how are you doing? He says, great, I'm finally able to be a real forester because uh, I've learned a whole new way of looking at the woods. Sure. And it's spread throughout our whole forestry community. And there's a lot of, it's interesting, there's a lot of um, what I would call cooperation and unanimity among the, the forest users and the industry and the environmental groups even we've got there's been a lot of acceptance of of certification forest certification and that we found that we want to manage our forests well and it's interesting mark jacobs down in aiken county is the land commissioner there he's probably been the leader of and for everybody sure and i think mark went to um i'm not sure mark is can tell you his story better than i but i don't think he got a PhD in forestry. I don't think he got a master's in forestry. I think he became a, a forest tech and got out on the ground and started learning and, and taught himself a lot. But he's just done a terrific job in Aiken County. And it's spreading all over the place. And we'll, we'll see uh, if, it, if, it, if it will grow as big as paper mills and potlatches and Blandons and all those... I don't know if it'll ever be that big again in terms of on an industrial scale, but I think there's a lot of potential for uh, innovation. 
What are some of the things that need to happen here to, to capture that opportunity? Because, I mean, the, the, the big critique that I've had of the range for a long time is that it, 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 it is very slow to, to adapt. Change. The, 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 it wasn't at one time. I think, you know, the first two generations, yeah. they got into mining because they, they saw mining as a path to something better. And then after World War II, the mining jobs became good enough so that people saw them as an end. And whereas the first generations built great schools, you know, they wanted their kid, they didn't want their kids to work in the mines. Right. 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 So there was there was imagination and vision there, and but the but the speed of industrialization and the demand for steel after World War II uh, just made that industry pretty much boom for twenty years. Anyway. Right. I think sure. the seventies it started to. And there was a period in the 50s, too. I, I, people know these ups and downs better than I do, um, where, where steel and ore production had these cycles. But uh, it went from uh, being a place where you wanted to end up to a, a step on the way to somewhere else. And I think we have to, we have to uh, think of our economy as creating, as where we are now, as a way to get somewhere else. Yeah, I, I want to add, you don't have to answer this if you don't want. Um, you have a daughter, a beautiful young woman. Millennial. Millennial, yes, very intelligent. 30s, in her 30s. You know, just a, a fascinating person to, to talk to and, you know, very intelligent. Um, she's gone into planning or... Urban planning, urban transportation. Plan. Yep, um, but doesn't, doesn't live here. She, she moved down to Minneapolis and she has essentially stayed... I don't, I'm not asking you to put words in her mouth, but what's, what, what's her reaction to this place? Huh. And, and how does she, you know, how would, I don't, you know, I moved back to my hometown after college. Yeah. I look back at that now and think that was probably the wrong thing to do. Really? I, I probably should have gone somewhere else, at least for a while. Uh, but, you know, I see my peer group trickling back in. You know, I'm 42. They, 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 they're moving back. What do you, how do you think Adele looks at this place? And how do you think that she perceives the, the, the prospects and the future of life up here? Mm -hmm. First of all, she loves to come back home. She loves it up here. And she, she doesn't think, um, I don't think she feels like there has to be a lot of um, visual Oh, well, yeah, she does. Architectural, if you turn, think of a planner, she, there does have to be visu visible changes to the communities. And it's funny, um, she was interested in planning. She, I didn't, she didn't know this. She used to play with Legos, and she was building things right, right as a kid. And she all of a sudden got interested in why, why is this block like this? And when uh, Kramer's... Uh, which was a little Ben Franklin right in town, a variety store with a counter, lunch counter, when that closed and Target came in shortly after that. And she and I were walking around the mall in Grand Rapids. And we both, it wasn't my idea solely, was Target should change their model and go up four stories and across the highway into the mall on the old site of, of uh, the old Ben Franklin, the Kramer's. 
And of course, we were we had no idea what <laughs> right. Target or Walmart. That's Target's or business model. Yeah, but we thought, <laughs> gosh, you know, if Target were right downtown, think of all the the traffic it would generate. And then now later she says, yeah, you're right, Dad. It would have generated a lot of traffic, and they wouldn't have had a place to put all the cars. But uh, I said, well, that's a problem you can figure out. <laughs> right. And, of course, they never did it. But that lot is still a big parking lot. Right. You know, and it's not, nothing's happening there. And I feel kind of bad about that. What would bring her back? Um, I well, not necessarily bring, bring her, her back. back. But, you know, people of, of that age... Mm-hmm. She has friends she went to high school with that she is still seeing in the cities. Oh, they're, okay. they're down in the cities, too. Right. And they're professionals. They're young professionals. She went to high school with them. They're still good buds. And um, a couple of them would really like to move back. They would love to be able to move back here. And she she is, doesn't want to move back here. So there is the draw of just the North Woods and the beauty of up here. And so um, they don't have, they can't see employment opportunities up here. Um, they sure are creative people and want this place to thrive. You know, they, they, I think they don't like the sprawl that's happened to a lot of small towns, right. including Hibbing and Grand Rapids. You know, the the building outside the old old town has it. It just doesn't it doesn't add to the character of the place. So it's. Now, excuse me, Bemidji has a downtown that's kind of vibrant. When I go to Bemidji, they talk about the strip out on the north and west part of Bemidji. I've never been there. I mean, I have. I've driven through when I'm going west. But I never think of going there. I go to the little restaurant downtown or I kind of like being, I like walking around downtown Bemidji. There's a little bit of that that's starting to kind of poke its head up here over the last decade, I think, in Grand Rapids. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, and when I've, you know, I've done some of the math now on these places and they're really successful in terms of like the, the tax base of the city, but they're still kind of a marginal part of the community. I mean, they're, they're, they're dwarfed by the new strip mall way out on the edge and uh-huh. the, the new super Walmart and all that stuff. I have a friend who grew up out on where, where a strip mall is just yeah. 10 blocks south of here, 12 blocks south of here. And he won't go to Walmart, Target. So you won't go to the movie show, movie house, right? Because that's where he used to play as a kid in the woods <laughs> with his friends, and he grew up here. He's not a pack sacker, right? <laughs> what, what what about that reaction? I mean, how, how do people? Because I remember when in 1990 we got our first we got our first Walmart in mm-hmm. Brainerd. We've now got a super Walmart. So the first one is sitting empty. Oh, really? Yeah. But we, we got the first one in 1990. And I remember the, the controversy because it was, oh, this will kill the downtown. But I remember being like the kid living on the farm going, wow, now I can go get shoes without having to drive, you know, an hour and change to St. Cloud. Right. Um, I was ecstatic about it. As time has gone on, and it's been you know Walmart, Super Walmart, Target, Costco, Home Depot, and there's a you know there's a there's a point where I step back and said, wait a sec, I am now way more sympathetic to the that early argument of this is going to destroy this part of the community. Yeah, but you know the thing you got to remember is they've they've created a. Shopping opportunity that's affordable for a lot of people. Right. That some of the some of the smaller uh, specialty sh- shops are too expensive. You know, and, and they're too expensive for me <laughs> at times. So you know, I go to Target, and I don't. 
I would still like to have the two movie theaters in town instead of the Duke Complex or whatever they call it, the eight theaters south. But I don't know. There, there's a trade-off there. Could, could you have... Well, you used to be able to have the five and dime. I mean, Kramer's was a place where you was our our Walmart, you know, when we first moved here. Right. And yeah, we had the Ben Franklin. Yeah, yeah, that was what it was. Kramer's was, and you'd sit at a lunch counter too and have a hot dog, <laughs> which, sure. I, which I really like, you know, because we did that downtown St. Louis. You had the Woolworths. I'd right. go into Woolworths, and and that that's similar experience on a smaller scale. Yeah. But as far as the future goes, I don't know. I think. Like I said, I know there's a lot of potential in especially wood products. It could be in chem- chemicals. It could be in energy. It could be in products, you know, wood wood products. We had a story on the network this morning about um, North Pacific Northwest. They're, they're now making um, building materials out of Douglas fir that are as strong as steel. And uh, some new buildings are going up there that are more beautiful than the concrete and steel things. And... And so there's, I see a lot of innovation there. Last question. Are you more optimistic about life on the Iron Range or are you more optimistic about the Minnesota Twins? Because one of them has suffered a total systems failure, uh, according to the owner. Well, it's apples and oranges. I, <laughs> I'm so old that I, if the Twins don't win another game, I will, I will still watch them. <laughs> Whereas the Iron Range is a little more serious. I just enjoy baseball. I enjoy going over to Portage Park and seeing kids play baseball. Yeah. Whereas if it's more serious on the Iron Range. And I'm not <clears throat> in total despair because, um, you know, mainly because the younger generation is better educated than we were. And I'm talking about myself, too. And there's a lot of really bright young, younger people who, who can, if given opportunity, will figure out a lot of stuff to do, you know? Right. I really believe that. Let's go have lunch and talk twins. Okay. Does that sound good? Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Go twins. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.